Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. You know, there's always a need for affordable housing. That's definitely not going away. And one way that we serve that need is through mobile home parks. And so I hope you enjoy the highlight show today that's focused on some mobile home park operators that shared with us how they grew their business and how they're operating their mobile home parks to be successful. Our guest is John Jacobus. Thanks for being on the show, John. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Whitney. I wanted to ask you, you know, like somebody that says, wow, you know, John, you laid all this out. I'd really like to think about mobile home park investing myself. But, you know, your first deal was, you know, had 70 homes on it. It seems a big deal. You know, is that something I should consider? You know, I hear it with multifamily all the time. And should I start with a duplex or 100 units or more? You know, and I imagine it's similar philosophy. But, you know, what would you tell to somebody, you know, that's like 70 units, I don't know, or 70 homes, I don't know about that. Is that similar to mobile home parks as well? It is. It's the benefits of scale. You benefit from scale. Your occupancy doesn't take as much of a hit on 70 units versus 70. You can spread your fixed operating costs across a wider base. Really, for many of the same reasons that it makes sense to go larger initially in multifamily, it also makes sense to go larger initially in mobile home parks. Financing is easier, you know, checks all the boxes on simplicities. Awesome. So, you know, keep us got like 70 units. You've seen the value add. There was a place to add more units. What was the business plan initially and how has it gone? Yeah, so the business plan consists of a couple of value levers that we saw that we could pull. So the lot infill was one, so 20 vacant lots infill over the course of a three-year period, which we think is sort of dragging our feet, but we like to be unreasonably negative. <laughs> on our projections, right? So if it's a low hurdle, we like jumping over one foot hurdles instead of 10 foot hurdles. Under market rents. So we saw about a gap of, you know, 15, 20 bucks a month on the lot rents that we thought we could very easily push. We validated that by running some test ads in the market. And so we had some, some reasonable assurance that we could achieve those rents. Is 15 to 20 bucks, you know, is that a big, like loss to lease? Is that a big amount in mobile home parks or is that? You know, it's not, it's not huge, but keep in mind, right, that may not be meaningful at all in the apartment space, but apartment rents are quite a bit higher, right? So 10 to 15 bucks on a, let's say, in a 1,000 average apartment rent is, you know, not that meaningful. But the average lot rent across the country is somewhere around $300. So 10 to $15 of a much lower number is much more meaningful on a percentage basis. So we were looking at, you know, 10 to 15%, 10 to 20% gap in where we were relative to market in what we thought is an escalating market. So not a huge opportunity on the rent bump, but material and a core component of our business plan. We also saw bloated expenses. So the owner of this particular park had owned it for quite a while, and it had just consistently deteriorated over time. We saw that in the financials. We also saw it when we were boots on the ground doing diligence and talking to the manager and it's right across the street from the fire department. So we talked to them. So we were able to validate that, you know, hey, this park has sort of been neglected over the past couple of years and, you know, we don't know what's going on and it's just sort of running into disrepair. 
So just introducing some professional management, not only from a cost perspective, but just paying attention and doing things and taking care of deferred maintenance. That was another major lever as well. The last thing was this, and this is the, this is the thing that, you know, at one point repelled us and triggered us to run away from it. But at the same time represented was the reason for a lot of the value that we saw. And that was a contaminated water well. So there was an issue with the infrastructure, so the private utilities, and such that the water levels were not up to the code of the state. And so that killed the interest of a lot of prospective buyers. But the more we dug into that, the more that we get comfortable and we're able to use that as a problem that scared a lot of others away. And we used it as a negotiating tactic to get a price that was appealing and attractive to us. Nice. Did you find that during due diligence? We did, yes. And so just to round out that question, the fixing that was a core component of our business plan, is a core component of our business plan. Because once we resolve that, then a multitude of financing options with much more attractive terms open up, which would allow us to take out capital and do you know, great things. So yeah, those four things really constituted the framework for a business plan. Yes, we did identify this issue with the well during due diligence. So you know, our due diligence, similar to multifamily, we look at the market, we look at the financials, and then we look at the physical infrastructure. And this, as part of our physical due diligence, we go to county and or state websites that keep track of health violations. And this particular park, you know, we knew it had private utilities, so it's septic sewer system and a private water well. And so we checked it, we went to the appropriate governing body, and that governing body keeps records on, you know, health violations. So we pulled up the address and that we saw there was quite a long history of health violations and notices, and there happened to be one outstanding. So we drilled into that, and I'm not a well operator, I'm not a plumber, right? I'd never owned an asset that had private utilities. So this was definitely a learning curve for me. And so we saw this thing, you know, and immediately we're like, whoa, this is, you know, it's got poisonous water. We don't want anything to do with that. But, you know, the initial thing was, okay, so how bad is this, right? Is this a deal breaker? You know, I don't know anything. It was radium is the contaminant. Don't know anything about radium. You know, this is, you know, six parts per million versus the five parts per million is the max threshold. How bad is that? Is that sort of, you know, instant death as you ingest it? Or is it sort of a slow, right? Is it a slow burn? So all these things, you know, sort of floating around and we had to get our brains wrapped around this. So we spoke to some well operators, some, you know, private well experts. We spoke with environmental attorneys, right? We just tried to round out and assess, okay, just how bad is this? And is it fixable, right? Because if it's a fixable problem, that's great because other people really react negatively to surface level things like this. That could be scary, right? Poisonous water well. Don't want to hear anything else. I'm not interested on to the next. Well, for us, you know, let's, okay, let's take a look, right? Is this a fixable thing? How much, how much is it going to cost to resolve this thing? If things were to go, you know, what's the worst case scenario? If it really to go bad, what does that mean? Are we, you know, are we going to be on the hook for all the historical issues, all the claims, you know, prior to our ownership? Is there some limits on our liability? Can we buy insurance to cap some of that risk? So those were all the things that we were going through and trying to assess, okay, do we really know how bad bad is and what that would translate into? Assign a probability to that 
and then look at the upside. And then on balance, you get it's the risk reward balance. And does this make sense to go forward? Well, so at the time, we did all of that. And we ultimately said, no, it doesn't make sense to go forward because it was at a price, the park was at a price and on terms that just were, you know, were more aligned with a squeaky clean deal. So we didn't feel that they properly reflected the risks associated with the well. And so at that point in time, you know, we're probably six to eight weeks into diligence now. So this is probably late July, early August. We said, you know what, this park isn't for us. We did all this work and we had compiled quite a comprehensive diligence package. It's probably worthwhile to someone else who's more experienced and has dealt with these types of issues before. Let's try to wholesale this and shop this around and see if we can get paid for our time and recoup some of the soft costs. So we spent about six weeks then from then through the end of October shopping the deal around. And we blasted everywhere. You, you, know, you may have seen some of my posts, right? It was out on Bigger Pockets and... MHU forums, like really everywhere that we could get an audience, we let them know, hey, we've got this mobile home park. We've done all the due diligence. You know, we put a sort of an offering memorandum together or something like an offering memorandum and spoke with about 40 different prospective investors and took a lot of phone calls, answered a lot of questions. And ultimately, nobody was interested at the price and the terms. So at this point, you know, it's late October. And we've got this deal in our hands that you know nobody wants. We've fairly, you know, thoroughly tested the market and really gotten a sense for the appetite in the market. And while discouraging because we're trying to wholesale this thing and make some money, it actually was kind of encouraging because now we had a lever that we could pull with the seller and say, hey, we spent a lot of time with your park. We know it and we're still interested. Here's our main issues though. And you know, good luck trying to get this price in these terms with the market because we've just tested the market and there's no interest. So if you're wanting to close and wanting to close fast, you may as well work with us. And so that entered, you know, round two of us being back interested and trying to renegotiate the deal. Our guest is Jefferson Lilly. Thanks for being on the show, Jefferson. Hey, Whitney, thank you for having me. You were looking for a stable passive investment and that's what led you I guess to real estate, you know, how did you decide on mobile home parks? Why not multifamily, self storage, you know, even house flipping? You know, why mobile home parks? So initially, I did think that I would buy an apartment building and I was just on, I think, LoopNet and would do a filter for multifamily properties. I live out in San Francisco. I knew I was not going to find, you know, affordable property in San Francisco. You're the first person I've heard say that. <laughs> So I was already looking, you know, in Lubbock, Texas and Peoria, Illinois and, you know, the greater Midwest and wherever I'd look, you know, there'd be 99 apartment buildings, you know, at an eight cap. Again, this was pricing now from 12 years ago or more, but, you know, then there'd be one mobile home park at like a 10 or 11 cap rate. And for your listeners that don't know, they can just think of that as basically the return that you would get on your money unlevered. If you just paid cash, you'd get eight or 11% on your money. And, you know, of course, the first time I saw that, I thought, well, that's absurd. I'm not buying a friggin' trailer park. You know, and I delete the search result and again, do it again in, in Lincoln, Nebraska or Omaha. And I probably had to get hit over the head, Whitney, five or 10 times. But it finally clicked. I thought, well, mobile home parks are multifamily. And if they're really, you know, yielding that much more money, why don't I look into it? So I did that and it clicked pretty quickly 
and we'll get into that here on the show, I'm sure, but it clicked pretty quickly why it's such a compelling niche. So then I just began to focus on it. I think it's the best thing going, better than self-storage. So were, were you looking to invest passively with another operator at that time? No. Or were you, you were jumping in saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be an operator? I was jumping in. Yeah, I knew it wasn't going to be you know 100% passive. But yeah, basically, I was looking to own a property directly which is what I ended up doing. It just didn't turn out to be an apartment building like I thought it would. It turned out a year and a half later to be a mobile home park. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I guess as far as mobile home parks specifically, you know, how are you picking locations for something like a mobile home park? And, you know, obviously everybody says, quote, market, end quote, you know, the way the market is. How are you picking locations for mobile home parks and why? So we tend to invest for cash flow which means we are generally purchasing properties in the greater Midwest. It's highly unlikely we would ever you know, pay up to have something that's coastal California or coastal Florida. Anyway, so we look for cash flow. So that leads us primarily to the Midwest. We then do have you know, a couple pages of diligence that we do on parks before we buy them. But just to do a real quick and dirty screen on them, we're basically looking for healthy and at least, you know, decent sized economies to invest in. So for us, the healthy part means that the average household income is 40,000 and up. And we want to see the average house price at 100,000 and up. So that by definition weeds out places like Detroit, Michigan, Toledo, Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio, some of the places that have unfortunately really fallen on hard times you know, have average household incomes of 32,000 and average house prices of 65,000. And we just can't compete with that. Anyway, so again, we look for those kind of economic indicators that it's a healthy metro. And then in general, we're investing in metros that are 100,000 people or larger. And pretty much if you've got all that going for you, again, we do have two pages worth of diligence to get through before we close. But as an initial screen, if you've got those three things going for you, then it's almost certainly a deal that's worth pursuing. And how many markets are you looking in at the same time? Oh, it varies. We get emails every single day from brokers. We do some of our own prospecting outbound. We cold call mobile home park owners. So I don't know, maybe at any given time, we're certainly kind of considering eight or 10 deals. And most of those will just, you know, pass on by the end of the day or the end of tomorrow. But, you know, there's always something new coming in tomorrow or the next day. So you certainly don't have to do every deal. You just have to do a relatively limited number of good deals. Yeah. Yeah. So can you walk us through that process a little bit of how you would be eliminating deals and mobile home parks is not something, it's not my specialty, that's for sure. And so, you know, how are you eliminating eight or 10 deals that fast? What are some things that we should be looking for when a broker is going to send me a mobile home park and I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's Jefferson's number? That's what, you know, <laughs> what do I need to be looking for? So in addition to what I've mentioned, then we're also, you know, obviously looking at price, so we will see some of these deals from brokers, you know, and the broker will manage our expectations that, you know, no, the price really has to be that high. You know, the seller wants a five cap on something. So it could be price that we just pass on. Again, a number of those deals will be in weaker economies. We pass for that reason. We'll also pass on deals unless there's something compelling about them. For instance, a lower price. We'll pass on deals that have a very high number of what we call park-owned homes. Those are pretty much what they sound like. They're homes that you as the landlord 
own. We prefer to really run this business as a parking lot business. We like to help our residents own their own homes. We like to buy parks where the residents already own their own homes and just pay us the lot rent into the ground. So we call parks with a very high number of park-owned homes, we call those horizontal apartment buildings. And the implication there where you as the park owner own a lot of the homes is first that all that repair and maintenance will fall on you. All those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs will be your responsibility just the same way as it would be if you owned an actual apartment building. So we'd rather have lower repair and maintenance. But secondly, honestly, rental mobile homes, rental homes now, not ones that residents own, but rental mobile homes tend to attract a very rough client base. So you'll almost certainly be starting off with folks that will unfortunately disrespect the houses, do a lot of damage to them. So it's much more important to buy a park where the residents already own most of those homes, and then we'll bring in additional homes, infill any vacancies. That's okay. We won't rent them, though. We'll put them out on a rent-to-own agreement, or we work with a partner that's a city area of Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's large company. They actually will finance the houses and put a proper mortgage against them. Anyway, so we build communities of owners, and we help people become homeowners and frankly, get out of apartment buildings and again, become homeowners. But it can be tough to start with a park that is a horizontal apartment building. Anyway, so again, unless the price is particularly compelling, just owning a lot of the mobile homes would be a reason that we might pass as well as the other things I've mentioned. We hope that you have enjoyed the highlight show today. You can always listen to the full episodes that were featured today by clicking the links in the show notes page in the, in the description box. Let us know in the comments what you thought of this episode, or you can go to lifebridgecapital.com forward slash podcast and click the feedback button. Let us know how we can add more value to you. Thank you and talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success. 